Hello, this is Yarrow, and welcome to Vested Capital, episode number 32, featuring my guest, Thomas Smalley, who is actually a repeat guest from, get this, nine years ago. So nine years ago, I had Thomas on this podcast, or at least the previous version of this podcast, and he was the founder of, back then it was called Flipping Enterprises, now it's better known as FE International, a mergers and acquisition company, which basically means his business helps other businesses acquire companies or potentially merge with them. Uh, Amazingly enough, nine years ago when I first interviewed Thomas, he had just been in business for about two years and his firm had been involved with about $5 million in deals. In today's episode, you'll hear him state now, nine years later, they've been involved with over a billion dollars in sales or deals. Basically, a billion dollars worth of companies have been acquired with the help of FE International. Now, when I say with the help of a firm like Thomas's, what they actually do, and you'll hear Thomas break down some of the different people, the teams he's built inside his company, and they do things like determine the value of a company to you know look at the numbers, see what kind of multiple we should be using to determine the value of a company. And when I say multiple, I mean like how much do you multiply the yearly profit to find out what the person or the company should give as a purchase price to buy the other company, so the acquisition price. I mean, also things like the due diligence process. So a lot of back and forwards needs to happen with checking on things like does the company really have the revenues that it does? And is the history of records about the company accurate? How does the, the company operate? You know, are the people in place? What does the founder or founders do? What sort of traffic sources? What sort of customer acquisition channels are there? How stable are they? All these important questions that a potential acquirer will want to know about a company before they buy. And that's what Thomas's business specializes in. Obviously, as his company has grown, the size of the company's he's been involved with has grown and you can see he's kind of found a nice middle ground he's not at the big super you know multi-billion dollar deals which you might go to like a goldman sachs or jp morgan to get done but he's also not at the smaller end of the scale which is often done at websites like uh, flippa or microacquire where you might get you know several hundred thousands to several million dollars type websites and Thomas is kind of going from that number all the way up to even a $100 million acquisition. So some big numbers being thrown around and his team has grown as his company has grown. So I invited Thomas back on the show because I wanted to talk primarily about business models and which ones are going to get the best return when you exit. So when you sell a company, which type of business generally returns the biggest windfall in terms of the multiple of the revenue or the profit that that company makes. So we assess things like SaaS, software as a service versus e-commerce versus a services agency or a content business, a digital business, you know, digital teaching style business. So we look at all those and what kind of multiples they tend to sell for and also talk about the state of the industry now. What does the, the buying and selling of website businesses or internet businesses look like since nine years ago when we first spoke to Thomas? So if you're interested in possibly selling your business or just hearing what goes on, maybe even a a business, have a listen to this episode and make sure you listen to the first one that Thomas and I did nine years ago if you want to go over the basics of buying and selling websites. Today's episode is brought to you by InboxDone.com, which is the company I co-founded now five years ago that has grown to help over 100 clients now with their email management, calendar scheduling, and virtual executive assistant needs. 
We specialize in email, so if you want to get out of your inbox, if you want to save one, two, three, four, or even five hours a day that you might be spending in there, managing and replying to your emails, scheduling your calendar, and completing all those tasks that are part of doing email or running your business. It could be data entry, it could be setting up tasks, it could be simple basic research, social media replies, you know, updating software, informing other parts of your company or team members, assigning things for them to do, all these little tasks every day that you do not need to be the person who's doing them, especially if it's email. If you're drowning in email, inboxdone.com is by far the best solution. We've been doing this for, as I said, five years now, and we certainly are the market leader when it comes to outsourcing email. You can learn more about us by heading to inboxdone.com book a discovery call. We'd love to hear more about what you're looking to get help with. And uh, we'd look forward to working with you. Okay, let's dive into today's episode with Thomas Smalley. All right, Thomas, thanks for joining me. As we were saying before we hit record, it's only been about nine years since we did the, the first a short, uh, episode. A short time, for sure. <laughs> yeah. First of all, let's just start for those who don't know you. Who are you and what do you, you know, do for a day job at the moment? Sure. Yeah. I'm Thomas Smale. I'm a well, original founder and, and now CEO of FE International. We are an, an M&A firm, so mergers and acquisitions. We help founders of content, e-commerce, SaaS, service, anything in the online world, sell their businesses. And we work with companies anywhere from around a $200,000 valuation up to a $100 million valuation. So when we spoke nine years ago, we were generally working on smaller deals as time's gone on that's only increased in in size at the moment we have four offices around the world so our head office is in new york we have a team in london we have an office in miami an office in san francisco where i'm or just outside san francisco where i'm based and our team at the moment is around 60 people and growing and all of that the entire business is selling businesses for people and it was funny we were saying this just before um we started the recording, but we have a lot of people who listened to the original podcast nine years ago who are still coming through and inquiring today about maybe selling their business. So we're very much in this for the, the long haul. We work with people over like a very long period of time. I'm reading the blog post I wrote for your first interview, and it says you've been involved with more than $5 million in deals last year alone. So that would have been 2012. Wow. Yeah, we're over, over a billion in total deals now. So I guess a lot has happened in a lot has happened in that time. Yeah, and let's do this properly. So normally I would go back in time and look at how you started FE. Well, you called it flipping enterprises back then. Is it FE International now? Yeah, what we, we rebranded back in 2014 or the end of the end of 2013. So we've been FE International for all of that time. So. I know, like when I did the first interview with you, which I will obviously link to this one so everyone can go back and hear your origin story. So we're not going to do that, you know, where you came up with the idea and how you got into this sort of M&A space. I do want to, though, cover like the last nine years to a degree, at least in summary, because I know I'm thinking back to, to really just put this in context. I sold, oh, I bought a blog in 2004. That was, and even before that, I'd sold my first ever website in like 2002. When I did that, no one was doing that as far as I know. I do recall in 2004, people were starting to buy and sell. It still was news when I purchased the blog. I remember other blogs wrote about it like it was a big deal. I paid $2,000 for it. It's not a huge, huge deal in any shape or form. But I do remember like the years following that. It was Flippa in particular, which we all know, a lot of people know of as a, 
a marketplace. It was started down in Australia, which is where I was living at the time and where I'm originally from. And that kind of, to me, was the sort of dawn of this concept of buying and selling websites became a thing. But obviously, M&A has been around for much earlier. Like ever since business existed, there's been mergers and acquisitions. I used to say, in fact, you don't get rich from running a business, you get rich from selling your business, which I think is possibly still true. But I'd love to kind of look at what the industry looks like now. There's, I mean, there's a lot of you guys came along and, and I feel like you become one of the most well-known biggest players in maybe the digital space. Most recently, I've, I've been hearing a lot about MicroAcquire, you know, another kind of sort of platform for buying and selling websites. There's always been a lot of behind the scenes sort of buying and selling, which you just don't hear about. And then there's like the traditional business M&A firms, which have been around, like I said, for longer than the internet, which still do a lot of work. So can, let's do two things. Let's just, A, bring you up to date. So from 5 million in deals to a billion in deals. How does that happen in, in nine years? What changes over that time? Yeah. So I think, I guess, firstly, a lot of like continued focus. Yes, our service has evolved from a technical perspective. Our team has evolved. We've got a lot more experienced, but fundamentally, we've really just focused on doing the same thing and doing it really well. So constantly refining our process. And over time in the, the industry, it definitely takes time to build a reputation. Like I founded the company in 2010. At the time, like you say, like buying and selling websites or anything online was relatively new. The concept of M&A had been around for as long as businesses have existed, essentially. So what we tried to do and what we've continued to try to do, which is probably what we're closer to now than we were when we first spoke nine years ago, is applying what you would expect if you had a billion dollar business and you called a, a Goldman Sachs or a Deutsche Bank to represent you and apply that to million, 10 million, $50 million deals where a firm like Goldman Sachs wouldn't pick up the phone, but we can still hire people from companies like that. So the vast majority of our team have a investment banking background. Most of them were previously working on billion dollar deals and they like the idea of working for FE International because earlier in your career, you can be working on more deals, more transactions. You're not just working on one deal per year. Most of the team are working on five to 10 deals at any one time and are closing well over 10 per year per person. And obviously we work in, we work in teams, so it's not all individuals, but as an individual within our team, you can get significantly more experience faster than you would in a bigger bank. Sorry, Thomas, I, I, I want to keep that story going, but I'm actually really curious. You have a team of 60. What do they all do besides obviously there's brokers. I feel like this is the easiest part to answer. You've got people like you just explained like you probably were at the start, they do the deal in a sense. They bring the seller and the buyer together. They do help with the due diligence process, money transfer. I'll go through, yeah, I'll go through all of them at a high level. So we don't really have brokers as such. The traditional business broker models, when you hear the word business broker referred to, generally a traditional business broker has just business brokers and business brokers do everything. So they do the valuation, they do the engagement agreement, they prepare the sales materials, they negotiate the deal and then they do the closing. If you call a traditional M&A firm, so you, you call Golden Sachs your billion dollar business, they have specialist teams that do everything. So part of the reason we have 60 people is we have teams for everything. So the very beginning of our process, we have an origination team. Their job is to speak to people who own businesses and get them into the idea of getting a free valuation. Then we have a valuation team whose background is like mostly technical, like they're all mathematics background or accounting background 
there's lots of very technical modeling that goes into or mathematical modeling specifically that goes into valuing businesses so we, we have that team and then they work closely with the origination team who speak initially to get the engagement agreement then we have an audit team and our audit team is approximately a quarter of the entire headcount of the business the audit team are almost exclusively accountants and their job is to prepare sales materials for the business and we do what we describe as an audit which is mostly a financial audit and other due diligence before we list the business so the this is one thing we do quite different from a traditional business broker traditional business broker or like flipper if you want to sell on a marketplace like flipper or microquire you just kind of upload what you have and maybe a couple of screenshots and they take your word for it what we do is we do a bunch of preparation ourselves and what we're trying to do is ensure there's no discrepancies in financials before we list the business so when an offer is accepted for the business and we get into due diligence there's almost never any financial discrepancies because we've done all that work up front so that's part of the reason we have quite a lot of headcount because while that's very expensive for us to do like these will qualified accountants in new york london primarily for those those two teams and we're competing with the big banks on salaries location perks benefits all of those things so they are a very good very talented team who have often worked in like big four or other investment banks so their job is the audit process then we have an MA team so if we go back nine years ago what we had was more like brokers so you then just got one person and they would then like do everything from there through to close now we have i guess a little bit more of a formal hierarchy we've built there's approximately seven levels of hierarchy below me that can be working on a deal and we we split that out based sometimes on a business model so you have business model experts so you're not if you have an e-commerce business you're not working with our vp of SaaS MA. you're working with our vp of e-commerce MA. and then depending on the size of the deal that's really how we set the seniority that's working on a, on a business so if it's a, a 50 million dollar deal for example I'm probably quite involved. Our director of M&A is probably quite actively involved. And then there'll be three or four people in the deal team below them in the M&A team working on that business. If it's a smaller deal, say a million dollars, you still have a senior director, a VP, and then usually a couple of more junior people below that. So generally slightly smaller team, slightly more junior, but there's still always a senior person working on it. And what we really do, because of the volume we do, we're not doing five deals a year, we're doing hundreds. We can specialize. And the way I kind of always explain to people is our valuation team are very good at valuing businesses, but you don't want those guys selling your business. They're not salespeople. And you don't want your salespeople doing the audit process for accounting because, well, some of them actually are accountants, but they're not trained accountants. So you don't want them doing the audit. So we have very specialist, different skill sets. And then outside of that, we have... In terms of headcount, we have a marketing team, various administrative roles, like a financial director, controller, because we have physical offices, particularly in New York, where we have about 15,000 square foot of space. We have room for about 100 people in the office. We have an office manager, HR manager, recruiting people, various other roles, which I guess only exist in a company once you hit a headcount of about 50 with a physical office. When we were 10 employees, you don't have HR, you don't have an office manager. You don't have executive assistance, any of those those things. Yeah, so we're definitely structured a little bit different from the average business broker, hence why we're an M&A firm. But where the confusion often comes into it is we're essentially providing M&A services to businesses that usually do not 
even get the chance to speak to an M&A firm. So we've essentially tried to... You're in the middle there. Provide the same service, but for people who otherwise wouldn't usually have access to a service like that, which is where there's often a lot of confusion around semantics of business broker, M&A advisor, investment bank. We're essentially doing all of the same things. We just position it as M&A. Okay, now it makes sense. I, I've had, a, it's funny, thinking back to my previous guest, I've had some businesses who have like sold their business and they talked about how they did it the first time without any kind of support service, no M&A or broker or anything, just did it themselves. And they said never again, because the legal process and the due diligence process is painful to do by themselves. And then I've had, he um, was an M&A, kind of run, ran his own M&A company, but then switched to providing software. I'm just trying to find my, my guest name here when I get it right. Switched to providing software for that marketplace as well. Kaisen Patel uh, of Deal Room, episode 23 of Vesta Capital. Yeah. So it's interesting how it's kind of I correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the let's just call it M and A, the buying and selling of businesses, has as an overall industry, it sounds like it's expanded, and you've almost stepped in to fill that gap, bigger than a broker, smaller than Goldman Sachs, sort of thing, and still you know doing a the Goldman Sachs kind of level of service with all these different departments you have, and that kind of leads into maybe the question I surfaced all the way back at the start. The second question was, what does it look like today in the world of selling businesses, especially compared to nine years ago when we first did our interview. You know, what's changed? I'm assuming obviously it's grown, more people sell digital businesses, but what else since you've been in the trenches there, what has changed? Yeah, so, well, lots of things, but also not many things. So the fundamental process of selling a business has not really changed. I'd say one thing that has definitely changed, I was actually doing a, a webinar yesterday for a, an angel investing fund for their, one of their cohorts and one of the things, and they were all building SaaS businesses. And one of the thing I, things I was saying to them is most of them have like been in business three or four years. They have no idea what it was like in 2004 when you were selling blogs or 2010 when I started FE. I was saying back then people had no idea what you could even sell a business. It wasn't even like a known thing, but the sophistication you get today, they, they all send me questions in advance. And the questions they were sending me in advance are not things I would have heard 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it would have been questions like, how do I know it's not a scam? I don't know anyone else who sold their business. Why do you think you're going to do anything better? Whereas the questions now are completely different. So the I'd say the average founder is better educated about not necessarily building a business to sell, but they back in, like you were one of the first people to ever sell a blog, $2,000 made the news. With all due respect, like a $2,000 deal would not make the news <laughs> no, now. Two years later, it wouldn't maybe, make the news either. Maybe but, a $20 yeah. million deal. So more and more, as more and more people have sold, I like to think we've been a big part of this because we've applied, say, like a legitimate and formal process to what previously used to either get done on marketplaces like Flipper and MicroAcquire, which have their place for smaller businesses but do not necessarily work if you have a business worth more than, say, $100,000. Yes, it's possible, but you're probably not going to get very good terms. Or people doing deals for them themselves where, I mean, those deals have also been happening forever but we will, in almost all cases, be able to negotiate a better deal than someone can get themselves. We just have a much broader reach experience. So people are definitely getting more sophisticated. Buyers are getting more sophisticated. So if you if you go back, again, eight years, 10 years, and you spoke to a private equity firm and said, hey, do you want to buy an e-commerce business or a SaaS business for $10 million? Like most of them wouldn't even return the phone or the phone call or the email or whatever you send them, they'll just say, no, that's way too small. We only do $250 million deals. 
So as, I guess, online, the internet's been around for a long time now, but as the world of online business has grown, there's been more sophisticated capital that's come into the space. And as private equity and investing in general has got more competitive, the buyers and the acquirers and the investors have had to get more creative with their deal making. And I guess what that's meant is that more sophisticated acquirers have come down market. So you can now have a $2 million business and there are some funds out there who might be interested in acquiring it. We have a, I actually have a phone call with a client just after this and their business is below a $10 million valuation. And one of the, the buyers interested is a, a big name private equity firm with billions of dollars under management, but it's a strategic fit for them. And they understand that if they want to get ahead with their portfolio in this space, making strategic acquisitions might make sense. The company, I can't disclose the company we're speaking to, but they wouldn't have even considered returning our phone call for a $50 million deal 10 years ago, whereas now 5 million, we have quite a senior director at the company kind of proactively chasing us saying, hey, I want to speak to the the seller. So from that perspective, dynamics have changed. Can so I ask, um, why is that? Is that because the buyer has seen a five or $10 million SaaS grow to a billion dollar company. So they actually see the roadway or the, the path that that might follow where they didn't see that before. Definitely some of that, but part of it is also if you're an entrepreneur today or launching a business today or 10 years ago, when you and I were young and working in our businesses, just like in the early days of online business, I think 2010 was still early days of online business. Yes, it had been around for a while but it was still early. From a generational perspective, entrepreneurs today are all launching something online, whether it's an app or in crypto and NFT or whatever. Like, well, that's not exactly what we do or overlap with. There's a whole generation, I guess our generation essentially, who understand online and don't necessarily understand physical businesses like buying gas stations, restaurants or whatever. Like, so online and things like e-commerce, everyone has an Amazon account. So people get the concept of a e-commerce business. Everyone uses, whether they know it or not, everyone uses SaaS products day to day. Content wise, most people now get their news or information from the internet, whether it's social media or reading blogs. Like, I don't know about you personally, but I've not read a physical newspaper in 10 years. Everything I read is, is online, essentially. So part of it is literally just a cultural thing. I think from a generational perspective, people are more used to online. So the concept of buying an online business does not seem weird. Whereas you go back 10 years ago, the people with money were essentially the previous generation who were still thinking like the more traditional offline old school businesses. So that's part of it. And also to your point, there's way more examples now of online businesses which have sold for billions of dollars, whether they've IPO'd or whatever. If you look at the biggest public companies in the world, most of them are now online to some extent. So maybe like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, everyone knows those companies. They're kind of mainstream. Everyone understands like who they are, like what they do. Most people have a Facebook account, even if they, even if they're not that keen to use the internet, people have a Facebook account. So yeah, a lot of it is just, I think just a cultural thing. It's just the, the world has moved on from 10 years ago. More people understand online. And it's gotten bigger everywhere too, right? Like it's fair to say your business is bigger. The buying price is bigger, the number of buyers are more, the number of sellers are more, everything is just increased. Yeah. We've definitely benefited from the, and while I like to take some of the credit for the legitimacy of the industry, because we were very early, very early kind of producing content, doing things like coming on podcasts to talk about the world, it has it has got bigger. 
just kind of naturally more and more people come into the space. Just looking at some of our data, like at the moment, buyers in our network have $39 billion of capital liquid to invest at the moment. If I go back eight years ago, I don't think we even tracked data like that back then, but it, it wouldn't have been a billion in total. If a buyer came to us with $10 million to invest in online business, that would be a lot. Now, if you have 10 million, I mean, 10 million is still 10 million, but you're not even close to the you're biggest acquirer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're not even close to the biggest acquirer in our network. So there's a lot more capital than there was before. And that's increasing at quite a significant rate. More and more companies are raising money to buy online businesses and kind of understand the potential as a, as a business. I feel like 10 years ago, it was almost kind of like hobbyists a lot of the time. Like if you had a blog, it was like a, a cool hobby. Whereas now it's like mainstream. Everyone should have a side hustle. Everyone should do an e-commerce story on the side. Everyone should be kind of blogging and doing social media. That's completely mainstream. So the concept of buying a business in that space makes sense. And I guess there are probably just more online business owners in general who actually make a living online. I think when I first met you, you were probably relatively uncommon that you'd been making a living online basically this entire time. Whereas now you can go to conferences and events and you'll find lots of people who have been running multi-million dollar businesses that online, that was not the case. I don't feel special anymore, ago. Thomas, I have to say. Yeah, definitely uh, not. a. <laughs> I'd love to keep this going forward too, because I, I guess me excited always to think about selling a business because that statement I met earlier, I feel it still holds true in a lot of ways. You get rich at the exit, not necessarily during running of the company, especially because, and I feel this is also more generally aware knowledge now because of TV. You know, we, I'm thinking right today, last few weeks, I've been watching the story of WeWork, the story of Theranos, the story of Uber, all these kind of documentary style dramatized uh, shows that show how companies raise money, how their valuations increase, how they get bought out or collapse or whatever the case may be. So, it's mainstream society understands this idea of venture capital and entrepreneurship and big exits and so on. So, we're all kind of more excited about that. Back when like you're referring to 2010 and even the decade before that, these deals were happening but it seemed like I remember feeling this myself. That was for big company people and then I was this guy running a website with business more bootstrapped more about lifestyle not about the exit of course it's still exciting to think about the exit even if for an individual if you sell for one million dollars that's potentially life-changing as a single business owner and i want to kind of talk a little bit about business models regarding valuations because i think to me this is the a byproduct of the expanding online space also a byproduct of just there being so much capital, like you're saying. I mean, I've, we have to timestamp this because I feel like I, I want to talk about multiples with you for different business models. And we've kind of just maybe closed uh, an era where, for example, multiples in a SaaS company have been crazy. Like you could get 100 times your top line revenue of a SaaS company, even if you're not in profit. And that's crazy where when I was selling businesses, and I still feel this is true for the non-SaaS, maybe the more like you said, the gas stations, you get three times your profit as your final you know, three to five times your profit was the traditional kind of buyout price. And that's very different to a hundred times your revenue, even if you're not profitable. So can we like look at today and, and maybe for the you know next 10 years too, based on your knowledge of what's going on in MA, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, SaaS has been the most 
like in terms of a multiple, you'll get the best multiple for SaaS, followed maybe closely by e-commerce marketplaces. Then you've got, I run an agency right now, basically a, a services-based agency. There's no way I would ever expect to get 100 times that. Even 10 times our top line revenue is like unrealistic for a service-based agency. And there's a lot of agencies online. And then, you know, I guess you've got people selling digital goods and services, like selling courses like I was doing, selling eBooks, which could be an individual doing it or could be grown into like a Skillshare or an Udemy, which then get these large valuations as well. So can we maybe look at that education, SaaS, e-commerce, marketplaces, services agencies, and how they all kind of fall into the spectrum of valuations and what's popular. And, you know, even from the perspective of why would I choose to start a business today if I want the highest valuation, which is the best? Sure. Yeah. So I think first of all, your tier list is about, is about right. So we have, I guess, three main headline business models we work on. And then I guess sub business models or hybrid business models or things like agencies, which are not a core of what we do, but we definitely have represented a reasonable number. Um, and they do have some overlap. So firstly, the highest multiples on average are SaaS businesses. Generally, you don't see revenue multiples in the industry for an outright sale unless a business is growing 100% year on year and it's above $10 million ARR, which we have sold, but we don't generally see that often. Uh, generally, they're either like raising funding like a Series A or whatever, and then their goal is to build a billion-dollar business. So what I'd love to represent a company like that, they're not the core of our audience. We're generally working with self-funded or People who've got a small amount of funding and they've built a profitable business, it's growing steadily, maybe 30% year on year, 50% year on year, 10% year on year, and they want to sell it. So generally with SaaS businesses, we're seeing anywhere from four times would be the low end. And this is on a annual annualized SDE, which is seller discretionary earnings. So to, for the sake of simplicity, that's essentially like net profit adjusting out anything the owner pays themselves above and beyond fair market okay say that again so it's the net profit which includes what the owner essentially pays. net profit yeah so everything your business makes but excluding anything you pay yourself above and beyond what is is necessary and what was the multiple so if you pay yourself anywhere from four times on the low end up to about 10 times for SaaS businesses depending on the size again we have deals above that we have deals sometimes below that I say, generally speaking, we'd be more likely to have ones above it than below. And we'll use an annualized version of SDE. And the reason we use that is if a business is fast growing and it's SaaS, if you look at where it was 11 months ago, that's not necessarily reflective of today because of the fact all the revenue is recurring. So buyers are fine to pay an annualized multiple or valuation because they understand the business is in a different spot. And then if you move on to, say, an e-commerce business where multiples might be three to five times on average. And again, you get you get higher than that, you get lower than that. We closed a deal recently for nearly uh, seven times, but it was in the kind of mid-eight figure range. So quite a substantial size business had revenue was nearly $100 million. So quite a substantial size business. The reason e-commerce multiples are lower than SaaS is you generally don't have that recurring revenue. What you can get in e-commerce is reorders. So something like Amazon, for example, that their prime product is entirely built around the the fact that if people pay for a membership and they get faster shipping, those people are going to spend more lifetime. They're going to spend more every year. If they just want to buy something, they're just going to go to Amazon and order because it's 
it's quick and easy. So you don't necessarily get recurring revenue as such. You can definitely, businesses itself for the higher end will often be able to prove that they have people coming back and buying multiple products. Generally on the lower end is if people are only ever coming in once, uh, so they're buying out a phone case and they never come back again. The businesses are doing better and get higher multiples. Could even have a subscription element. So this is where there's some overlap in like hybrid. You could have a subscription box or something like that where you pay. So, so then you might get a multiple nearer to SaaS because it's it's recurring. And then below that, we have what we describe as content. I think you mentioned digital products. They would fall into that blogs that are monetized with affiliate programs, ads. Those businesses generally somewhere between three to four times annual. But again, we have deals, particularly the larger businesses will sell above that. And really bad businesses we won't take on, but there are definitely opportunities to buy lower than that if you're willing to take more risks and go onto a, a marketplace. Just we have quite a high quality burden, so we won't take on businesses like that. And again, generally, if they have a recurring element in there, so maybe they're promoting an affiliate program which has recurring commissions, or maybe they've built a email list or a social media following, meaning that every time they launch a new blog post or podcast or video or whatever it might be, they have an influx of people. So it's not quite recurring revenue as such, but it's definitely sustainable traffic. They're not maybe 100% reliant on Google organic search. They might have 20% from their Facebook following, 20% from their email list, 40% from Google, and then 20% from direct sources. That would be generally what you'd expect to see a a higher multiple for. And then service businesses are generally somewhere in the middle of all of those. Service businesses get more valuable exponentially as they get bigger because generally small service businesses, more than any of the other business models, rely on the owner to either provide services, do sales or whatever it might be. So for example, in my business, 10 years ago, I think we had four people. It was me and my business partner Ismail doing essentially all of the work. Whereas now, yes, I still I still work a lot, but I'm not the one providing every single element of the service. So our business would be exponentially more sellable today than it was 10 years ago because it was just a service business with kind of a couple of us plus a very small team doing primarily small deals based on our own knowledge. And that's what most small service businesses look like. Whatever service you're providing, it's often based on the seller's expertise. So that's generally what multiples look like that's very much like a broad generalization there's not a and this part of the reason why we have a, a, a valuation team who are building out mathematical models all the time there's not a generic apply 4x or 6x to a business because it has xyz as a criteria that's not how it works and quite honestly if it was that simple for at least for valuation you wouldn't really need firms like us you could use a an online calculator and again if it was as simple as an online calculator we would have built one. So yes, there are some out there that can give you a very broad range, but I always think that broad ranges are quite dangerous because to your point in the a million dollar business is a life-changing sale. What if the calculator gives you a range of 400,000 to 1.2 million? There's quite a substantial difference between 400,000 and 1.2 million. Yes, 400,000 could still be life-changing, but at least my, I guess my, my personal experience and also experience with clients is that first million dollars of net worth like in the bank whatever that might be that's the real life-changing part where it takes a lot of depending where you live in the world but in almost every city and i'm in 
just outside San Francisco, so it's not a cheap part of the world. I would say that that creates quite a good foundation, like financially. So I always think a million dollars is a is a I guess a good number for that initial financial security, which is why online calculators and things like that are a little bit dangerous because you can maybe have inflated expectations or deflated expectations, which don't necessarily reflect reality. Yeah, and if I remember from our first interview, which is why we don't really need to go there now, but we did talk a lot about the elements of due diligence. And and I think we probably talked about smaller deals back then because that's what we were all dealing with, you know, like the the sub- 1 million, maybe 4 or 5 million, but not 100 million sort of plus. And I'm sure, I, I mean, I have to go back and listen to it, but I, we would have covered things like, yeah, what does the owner do and how much is that person still need to keep the business going? What are the sources of revenue and how stable are they? Are they recurring? What are the sources of new customer acquisition, the traffic? Uh, is it a stable email database that they own or is it paid ads that they have to keep running? And what happens if Google or Facebook changes the algorithm? All those kind of typical questions questions which we don't need to go into now but are obviously super important for that due diligence process yeah, exactly um, so you know given the those kind of very clearly defined although they do overlap industry types or business model types that are popular i feel like also it's important to say this too because i feel like everyone wants to buy a SaaS company where most people don't get excited about buying an agency maybe unless you're an agency owner who wants to add more agencies to your business and kind of expand you know horizontally or vertically that way if you are, let's just say, an investor with money, you know, in, in the millions of dollars or even tens of millions of dollars, and you are looking to buy something now, given all that we just talked about with those business models, what are the pitfalls? Because although SaaS is the best multiple and mo- might be the most exciting to build or to buy, there's a the whole side of that where you need engineers and software development where you know, e-commerce, you just need some widgets that hopefully you can source from China and just keep selling them. And and there's a profit margin there, but there's always the risk of competitors coming in. And, you know, all these pros and cons, risks and advantages with each of those business models. What do you find today? Like, do you guide people towards buying a certain business type, uh, especially as a first-time acquirer? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. So I'd say some people come to us and they already have a preconceived idea of what they want to buy. And they say, hey, I've got this amount of money. This is what I want to buy. And generally what I, I say to people as general advice is start your search initially as broad as possible within your financial, like personal constraints. So if you have a million dollars, don't try to look for a $10 million business because you're, you're not going to be successful. You're just going to be disappointed because if you're working with a good firm like us and you make an offer on that $10 million business, and you only have a million, we're just going to say no, even if you think you can go raise the money or someone's going to lend you money. Like That's not going to happen. So start within your financial constraints. I always recommend a broad search because a lot of people, to your point, are like, oh, I hear SaaS businesses are what I should buy. So that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. But all businesses have, and business models have pros and cons. I always think, and this is something I've, I've been speaking about since day one of FE is, you need to buy something that aligns with your skill set or at the very least a skill set you can hire and manage. So I'm personally don't have almost any of the skills that my, my team do, but I have the ability to kind of hire and manage accountants, developers, marketers, whatever that might be. So I theoretically could build a portfolio of SaaS businesses and be able to operate those. But I think a lot of people when they're starting out, they're like, oh, I hear SaaS is the best. I'm going to buy that but they don't really have any interest in managing people 
and they can't write any code and their background is uh, they've been working for Amazon for years. So to me, that would make sense that they should go buy a, a an e-commerce business. And then I'd say some businesses have different levels of kind of complexity. Again, if you have a lot of capital to deploy, there's no reason why you can't buy multiple businesses or businesses that overlap. So I always think that content businesses are probably the least complex to acquire the first time around because I guess not necessarily everybody, I'm being slightly facetious, but almost everybody can write. So you can buy a blog and produce content and every single last person can do that. With an e-commerce business, not necessarily everyone can figure out logistics and managing cash flow of an e-commerce business, particularly as they get bigger, they're quite complex. And then with the SaaS business, to my point, not everyone can write code. Yes, you can learn, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can suddenly operate a SaaS business. So content businesses, I would say subjectively, but also quite objectively have the lowest complexity. Almost anyone can run a content business. The multiples generally are lower, so they can be quite a good entry point. If you have enough cash, you can basically buy any business you want and just hire people around it. And if you're buying a big enough business, that business generally already have an existing team in place. So you don't have to do anything anyway, which is something that's changed for us as a business. 10 years ago, the majority of companies we sold were like one people blogs or one person SaaS companies. Now we're quite often dealing with businesses that have 50 employees. So the challenge for a buyer is slightly different because you acquire that and the actual skill set is management. It's, it's not coding. It's can you manage a team? Can you motivate a team? Can you inspire a team? All of those kind of things, particularly with bigger deals. When I say bigger being $10 million and, and, and above. Yeah, so I'd say focus on what you're personally interested in, what you're passionate about. Focus on what you can actually run. And I'd never suggest anyone chasing a business model just because it's popular and, and cool. The reason people like SaaS is because it's popular there are and exploding cool. multiples where people are raising a lot of money on, quite frankly, stupid revenue multiples that don't make any sense. And most of those businesses will crash and burn from a valuation perspective. We've always been quite conservative and kind of not chase the trends. Hence why most of our clients kind of what the average person would consider, they have a boring business because it grows 30% year on year. They, they work a nine till five running their business and it just grows steadily. It's not getting in tech crunch because it grew 400% last month or anything like that. But they're the businesses that investors are buying today and they'll still be buying in five years time and they'll still be buying in 20 years time if you're still running your podcast and will still invite me back. I'm very confident of that. What I'm not confident of is those hundred times revenue valuations you mentioned. Like do, do those happen when people are raising funding? Yes. Do I think they're sustainable? I would say no, I'm very skeptical. So we really focus on what I think is sustainable, consistent, evergreen, and that will people will always be buying. A lot of it, yeah, just depends on personal preference and what you're interested in. A lot of people think buying and running a business is a little bit easier than it might be. The, the main thing is actually like the personal commitment. It's not really the skill set, because if you're intelligent and have access to capital, you can probably figure it out. It's are you actually ready for the the reality of running a business because it's not quite as easy as it may seem. I've heard more and more stories about a group of investors coming together and just basically launching like an equity fund. And then their whole plan is to buy, say, e-commerce businesses and then 
try and or create some synergy, I hate using that word, but creating that sort of cross-industry solution where, for example, to keep it simple, all those e-commerce sites run Facebook ads. So we can buy these e-commerce sites, we can bring them under the umbrella of our holding company, we can put our team of expert ad buyers to run ads across all of them, get those economies of scales, uh, you know, learn from every single situation. And then they're basically running these almost like Berkshire Hathaway-esque holding companies of e-commerce businesses in all kinds of different industries. Are you seeing that even from the buyer side coming to you saying, listen, we just want to buy e-commerce site 10 million plus. We don't care about the, the industry. We just you know plug it into our system and away we go. Definitely a lot of that. I'd say that's probably been slowing down more recently, but particularly in the, the Amazon FBA space, so people selling products via like Amazon's marketplace, essentially, and using their fulfillment solutions, or maybe even doing their own fulfillment. Definitely a lot of capital coming into that space. With, they describe themselves as aggregators, but they're essentially private equity firms, which are doing what you say, which is they're raising private capital, and then they're kind of amalgamating businesses and using synergies to grow them. I would say buyers that are successful aren't just coming in and randomly buying anything because it sells products on Amazon and it makes $10 million a year. I would say those buyers definitely do exist, but they come and go very quickly because they buy one business from us and one from 10 other M&A firms or brokers or whatever, and then they run it into the ground because they've not really put any thought into the operations. I'd say the better buyers at scale are quite disciplined in their approach to criteria. So while when you're starting out, I think you should have a broad criteria. If If you've raised $200 million and you're trying to buy five to 10 businesses, you need to be quite strict in your criteria. You can't buy, at least I've never seen this done successfully. You can't buy a blog, a YouTube channel, a podcast, another blog, uh, an e-commerce website built on Shopify, one built on Magento, an Amazon FBA store, and then a, a SaaS product, and then a WordPress plugin. Unless they were in exactly the same target market and industry, it's just not gonna work. It's basically impossible to build a team at least what I've seen that would be able to run that. So you need to be a little bit more disciplined. So sales have to be this. If you're talking about running Facebook ads, return on ad spend has to be X. So yes, that does happen. And it has been happening more and more recently. But the most successful acquirers are disciplined. They know what they want. And they don't really deviate too much from that criteria unless it makes a lot of sense to them. For example, in the case of the the large private equity firm, I said, looking at a $5 million business, usually that would not be on their to-do list to go acquire, but because it's a essentially a perfect strategic fit, they'll look at it and kind of have a little bit of flexibility. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the stories we hear, whether it's an equity group buying all these different e-commerce sites or the huge valuations of SaaS companies, even just listening to podcasts, we, you kind of hear these outlier stories from these very few, very well-known either investors or entrepreneurs or, or both venture capitalists and so on. And then we think that that's normal where behind the scenes, 99% of the deals are, like you said, the boring deals and just good businesses selling for boring multiples, but still good money for the seller. And and then those businesses are grown and, and continue to hopefully you know, with a new owner, succeed. I was curious for someone in your shoes, Thomas, I may have asked you this before, but it's worth asking again now after so many years have passed. Do you not get tempted to buy 
the websites and the businesses that come across your table because there's so many like you're an entrepreneur yourself you're interested in growing your capital that's the topic of my show here best of capital you know what a company's worth you know what it might be worth five years later when it grows and there's more so i'm kind of curious have you not thought of or have you are you doing that are you buying other you know businesses yes we've like since day one of the company so i actually started and by started buying businesses myself i'm talking about the two thousand blog dollar blogs you're talking about ten years. So I, I started the company twelve years ago buying and selling for myself, but we're talking turn a hundred dollars into five hundred. So since day one of the company, I've always bought businesses. Currently my business partner and I acquire separately about one business per year. Sometimes we would do two. We do some, we do enough, I guess, to keep our mind sharp and make sure we know what we're doing, which I've always thought is useful from a service perspective because like i actually am an operator myself i'm not just someone who i'm not just a sales guy saying yeah you should buy a business like i actually do it myself it's an asset class i understand if you gave me a million dollars and said go buy some like real estate and turn that into two million i honestly wouldn't have a clue where to even start like i own a house and that's about the extent of my real estate knowledge whereas if you said go do that with a SaaS business for example i'd probably be able to figure it out so Yes, in short, we've always done that from day one. We don't do a huge amount of volume personally because we've always been kind of conscious of conflict of interest. If we were buying half the businesses that we were listing, I don't think I'd feel particularly comfortable with that. And I don't think clients would trust us, but we do enough to have a really good understanding of the space. What do, what do you buy? Like SaaS or e-commerce or anything and everything? Or? Primarily SaaS and content are the main things we've acquired over the years. So for example, we run a magazine called SASMAG, which is a, essentially a, a blog and a print publication for SAS. Like as part of that, we made a couple of co- like small content site acquisitions, which we like redirected and, and things like that to get that off the ground. So we've built, I guess, somewhat strategic acquisitions like that for our business. And then just also some which are standalone investments. But no, we've, we've always done that. But unfortunately, I don't have access to a billion dollars. So I've not got enough capital to buy all of the businesses that come through. And to my early point as well, I've never seen anyone successfully buy lots of different business models. So even if theoretically I did have the capital, that doesn't mean I would want to buy every business we represent because I wouldn't be the right person to run it. But that doesn't mean it's a bad business. It just means that either bad operator or not the right operator for that business. I'm sure you're tempted on some level. I know every business I see, I don't want to run it, but I'm like, oh, I'm just curious. You know? The entrepreneurial spirit is... I would love to run every business we represent and I would back myself to figure it out. And I think I'd probably be quite successful. But the reality is like, we're really good at one thing, which is selling businesses. So that's what I focus on. And that's what I think about every day. Acquiring, yes, it's tempting, but we kind of keep it at its kind of at a reasonable scale. So we still like understand what's going in in the space, but without creating too much kind of overlap of our my day job, essentially. So if people want to buy or sell a website, feinternational.com, best place to go for starters? Yep, absolutely. If you go on there, you can either navigate to buy, you can navigate to sell, kind of self-explanatory. If you want to learn a little bit more about the industry or things like valuation, we have like a 20,000 word post on valuation for each different business model, which gets into a lot more of the technicalities rather than the broad ranges I've provided. And then on basically all social media channels, we're quite active. So you can kind of 
get in contact with me or the team in any way you want. I still get your uh, your weekly newsletter every Friday. It pops into the inbox. So yeah, I think I got it today. Uh, maybe last question uh, here, Thomas, before we go. You did mention there, okay, so you only own one house. This is kind of my, my standard question for Vested Capital. Everyone's always interested in how people invest their money. So clearly, I would assume your net worth is mostly tied into FE International. It's been your life's work for the last 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Plus, you buy a few web uh, businesses, like you said, more to keep the skill, keep familiar with what you do and how the process works. Are you into anything else? Do you buy shares? Do you buy crypto? Do you have other things that you're investing in? Or is it really just all about staying in this this sort of field? Personally, very much just in the field. I'd say each year, while we only do one acquisition, that acquisition gets bigger as our personal capital, fortunately, has grown. So it's not like I'm doing a without going into the exact numbers, it's not like I'm doing a $10,000 deal every year anymore. Personally, separately from that, I'm actually like mostly in cash at the moment because I'm kind of keeping an eye on the, the market. So I, I don't actually do a huge amount of investing elsewhere. But quite honestly, this is at least my excuse is very busy day to day. I'm extremely focused on running FE and growing FE, building out the team, constantly providing a better service, doing more deals rather than how I can make Let's say you can put it in S&P 500 and make 7% a year or whatever the, the long-term return is. That doesn't really move the needle for me versus figuring out how to grow what is an already eight-figure revenue business by 50%. That is far and away from a personal ROI perspective better than investing in stocks. So yeah, I'm very much like saying cash. We do, like business partner and I do, do a little bit of investing in the space ourselves, but we're very much kind of all in on FE day to day and the and the industry as a whole. Which makes complete sense too, because it's fair to say one of the best, if not the best form of capital, individual capital growth is to be the founder of a company and just focus on it and grow it. And or to also acquire other businesses and grow them and maybe exit at some point with them. But business itself seems to be one of the best ways to get rich. It's the simplest way to put it. And you're already in the business of buying business. Yeah, for sure. And I think I'm good at business, but honestly, I don't really know much about stock investing. I don't really know anything about real estate. So I'm not even going to distract myself. I'd rather get 10% better at what I do rather than I would have to get 200% better at stock investing. And the answer would probably still be buy an index fund. Yeah, <laughs> true. All right. Awesome. Thomas, any other websites you want to send people to before we finish up? No, I think the FE International site is a good place. Like anything else we're involved in, you'd probably find a link from there anyway. Okay, great. I recommend people check it out too, just because there's so many guides now. Like when we started, there were guides, but you guys have spent so long building content around this. So appreciate your time. Good luck with the the continued growth. And yeah, let's do this again in another nine years and see where things are at. <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. I really appreciate you inviting me back. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for listening in to today's episode of Vested Capital. I hope you learned something from Thomas. And if you're looking to maybe sell your business or acquire a business, do get in touch with him and the team at FE International. They're certainly very experienced now at this whole world of buying and selling online businesses. Um, and also, if you know someone else who might be interested in maybe learning more about this world of buying and selling, mergers and acquisitions, send them to episode 32 of Vested Capital to hear more from Thomas. 
And if you have not done so already yourself, please subscribe to this podcast. You can do that in any of the most popular podcast players for your phone or your computer. Just hit the plus or the follow or the subscribe button and you'll get every single episode of Vested Capital as I release them, plus access to the entire back catalog of episodes. If you dig far enough back, you'll even find the first interview with Thomas from 2013, I think it was, if I was looking into the history. Yeah, 2013, you'll find the interview. And of course, I'll link the first episode with Thomas in the show notes for this episode as well. Okay, thank you again for listening to Vested Capital. My name is Yarrow, and I'll speak to you on the very next episode. Bye-bye.